So let's say you want to make money investing in stocks and who doesn't? There's one popular way to go, which is to become the stock picker and see how well you do. But the other way, which is not quite as obvious, but can be a lot more successful, is to pick the people who pick the stocks, the people that spend all of their waking and working hours getting the techniques down and proving they have a performance through a track record that has been established. On this month's episode of Baseline, Lance Peltz talks about the wisdom of that strategy and as the chief investment officer, Cavendish Ware shares what goes into picking the people who pick the winners. From the studios of NMD Plus comes Baseline. Baseline, brought to you by Cavendish Ware, a UK-based boutique wealth management firm that provides truly bespoke advice. Cavendish Ware, wealth for life. And now is your host, Dave Wallace. Welcome to this month's episode. And today we are delighted to have Lance Peltz join us. So Lance is Chief Investment Officer for Cavendish Ware. Lance, do you want to give us a brief introduction to yourself? And then we'll be talking about how investment decisions are made in the company. Sure. I'm the Chief Investment Officer, or CIO is the acronym. I lead the investment team and part of the role is to help lead the investment process. But I very much believe that investment is a team sport rather than a single person activity. So there is a process centered around a group of people who make up the investment management committee. And the role is to debate and challenge our investment thoughts and ideas. We have a regular schedule of meetings And in between them, there's a lot of discussion going on about what we think is happening in the world. Very much aware that making forecasts is pretty difficult. I love that overuse saying making forecasts about the future is very difficult. (laughs) But we have to think about where we're going. And part of that is shaped by where we've been in terms of valuations and expectations and central bank policy. The point I think of today is for me as a customer to ask about how decisions are made. So, you know, I think you've given us a high level introduction to the process. What's a bit about your background? How did you end up as the CIO at Cavendish Ware? How long have you got for a very long story? (laughs) Well, if we can try and condense it into two minutes maximum, that would be fabulous. Okay, this will date me. And I hope it doesn't sound too avaricious. But when I was a young man graduating from university and everybody's saying, well, now what are you going to do? It was actually the time of the big banks. And all these stories about Essex boy traders earning multi-million pound bonuses. And I thought, hmm, that'll suit me. I could do that. It's much better than working. (laughs) Um, So I actually sought out a job. And I applied to American and Japanese financial houses as they were the ones recruiting and growing. Ended up joining a Japanese securities house on their graduate intake program to train me to run or be a trader. And I mentioned that, and it's a long time back, but actually the valuable lesson I learned there was, I'm a terrible trader. (laughs) Short-term decisions go wrong. 
we are much better at taking a more reasoned view, balancing up the pros and cons, the risks and the rewards and the probabilities. And that sounds very quantitative, and some of it is, but a lot of it's actually just that qualitative assessment of those factors, but much better at taking longer-term views. From there, I moved into a portfolio management role with another Japanese securities house, initially as an equity analyst and then as an equity portfolio investor. Actually, that shaped another belief that is very pertinent to the wealth management world, which is essentially to do stock picking Picking the individual companies and doing the analysis on those companies takes not only a lot of skill, but takes a huge amount of resource. And many wealth management firms don't have that scale of resource. And frankly, we think it is better to focus on picking the stock pickers, i.e. the fund managers, than actually trying to pick Shell over BP or oils over technology or Microsoft over Meta, for instance. And actually, Meta is a very good example of how people can still be extremely surprised on the wrong way. And what was going on as well at the same time was when Meta had their disastrous results. I understand Snapchat had some incredibly good results and was up over 58%. So what it tells me is that actually doing single-level stock analysis is very difficult. And so we absolutely do not do that. We build our portfolios or we build our clients' portfolios using collective investments, which is essentially open-ended mutual funds. And there's been a lot of column inches written in the past about active versus passive. Our starting point on that is we are absolutely agnostic. Active, where you pay more fund management skill is perfectly valid in a market which is less efficient where we believe we can find managers that have skill and a process and the ability to outperform that market. In other words, add value for the fees they're charging. And markets that are much more efficient, and notably the US equity market, essentially most of our clients' exposure is through low-cost passive investments. In other words, we're just in there, get both feet in the market and benefit from what we call in the trade, the beta, the market movement. So that was part of my background. And then I moved to a company which was acquired by Merrill Lynch and joined Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. In that role, I was responsible for the due diligence, leading the team that was responsible for due diligence of mutual funds. In American parlance, I was responsible for offshore fund due diligence, anything that's not American. So that's an interesting insight into geography depends on from where you're standing. Yeah, of course. But had a huge exposure to a very wide range of asset classes, very wide range of investment approaches. Merrill Lynch at that point in the mutual fund world was definitely one of the 300-pound gorillas, which gave me great access to different investment styles. You also figure out what works, what doesn't work, what has got luck, a following wind, and what has got uh, persistence, the ability to outperform, at least in that fund manager's own space, with a degree of confidence and persistence. If you can identify a fund manager that's got experience, skill, a structure, a process, which means that their investment skill can be implemented in a repeatable fashion, and there's a track record that banks that up. In other words, anybody can write a recipe, but actually cooking the recipe takes the skill. So much of what you're doing is becoming confident with the fund managers that are out there with their track records and then their approaches. And 
again, it's interesting for me that you focus on the fund managers themselves. But I mean, to be clear, there's an awful lot of them out there, isn't there? Yep. So, you know, how do you go about selecting the right fund managers in the first place? So if I look at my portfolio, there's quite a few different companies in there with different funds. Yep. So what's the process you go through in terms of selecting those in the first place? I'd like to say we've got a really fantastic, magical black box that we put the numbers in and outspews the answer. And actually experience has shown that you can use the quantitative, the performance numbers and the analysis of the performance pattern to help screen the universes, because you're absolutely right. There's loads of funds out there. In fact, some time ago, we did a count. And as far as I could ascertain, there were more funds than companies in Europe. Wow. So, yeah. Very easy to get lost in the weeds. So quantitative screening is a tool, but it's by far not the main tool. Quantitative screening is basically looking at the raw numbers for these funds, is it? It's more than the raw numbers. You can slice and dice these numbers in a whole host of ways. What we would be looking for when we're doing this screening is for funds whose performance matches the expectations right or exceeds expectations with the space that the fund manager is investing in and that can actually mean underperforming as well as outperforming so a very clear aspect is that for the last few years growth investment style those managers who choose fast growing companies and pay less attention to valuation have led market returns there's a juxtaposed investment style which is the value manager who picks companies that are, in their view, cheap. And that cheap can be absolutely really cheap, what we would call deep value. So the sum of the parts is worth more than the market price. So if there's a big discount in the market price to the sum of the parts, that would be called deep value. And it could be in a sector that's actually in terminal decline. You could say tobacco stocks, for instance. It's very difficult to envisage there'll be many tobacco companies around in 20 or 30 years' time. Mm -hmm. Or steel producers in Europe are, if not a dead breed, certainly a very dying breed. Yet there will be times when a growth manager will underperform and a value manager will underperform. So if a value manager is underperforming when the value style is in the doldrums, that's a valid quantitative confirmation that the manager is doing what they say they're doing. So you've got the screening. Then a lot of it is actually down to meeting the manager, kicking the tires, questioning the manager, and trying to get past the presentation, sometimes questioning other people involved in the investment process. Because as I said earlier, what we're doing is picking the stock pickers, not picking the stocks. So if I was still an equity analyst, I could look at a company and say, oh, I think the profits are going to grow X. That's a forecast. But then making the valuation judgment, I think it's cheap compared to its peers, either domestically within the same country or globally, is an observation. And you can really have a much better handle on that judgment. And then what we do is we look at their portfolio as a proof statement that they are doing what they say they do. And then the performance numbers are, if you like, actually tasting the dish to see that the outcome tastes good. It's really helpful because it kind of gives me a great insight. 
into the process. I mean, it's great to hear that you do actually meet the fund managers as well and that you're looking beyond the glossy presentations because I can kind of almost picture what those might be like in terms of what's going on. So as Cavendish Ware, do you then have a reservoir of funds that you're looking to? I mean, I guess customers may have different risk appetites when they come to you. So some people, I guess, will be more cautious than other people who might be more adventurous in terms of decisions. Are you then balancing what portfolios you build for those people up against the reservoir of funds that you have available? Well, certainly we have a very large reservoir available, even though we are tending to use a subset of funds that are UK domiciled. Right. We also use some offshore funds, but they must have, and I won't bore you with the details, but they must be tax efficient for UK investors. There's lots of European funds that are not tax efficient. We wouldn't even think about them. Still a huge choice. Our reservoir is partly experience-based. We are absolutely not setting ourselves up as a wealth manager that covers the whole broad waterfront. We have a tie-up with a firm that's very good at fund selection. So there's a feed of ideas from them into us, which helps that. And it comes back to the investment process is a team sport. There's a lot of debate and a lot of challenge, and they're part of that debate and challenge process. But the other aspect we believe strongly about portfolio construction is that really we should be building our best mix, our best equity mix, and our best bond mix. So blending the fund managers together to build a portfolio that if it was just a pure equity portfolio would do well against the equity market. And then we adjust the client's risk tolerance by the different ratios of equity, which are deemed to be risky. And I use that word deemed because that's very much in regulatory parlance. Equities are more volatile than bonds and definitely more volatile than cash. And if you have a single company, it can go bankrupt and go to zero. But if you have a diversified portfolio of companies, and that's achieved by holding a number of funds, which underlying have exposure to lots of companies, the chance of the whole portfolio being wiped out and go to zero is effectively zero. They won't happen because even deepest recession, some companies go out of business. We know the companies carry on and survive and they come out the other side of a recession and grow. The risk of equities is the price volatility, which if you invest over any longer term time horizon, smooths itself out. And that's another key tenant of what we believe. We should be investing for the longest time horizon possible because it's time in the markets that counts, not timing the markets. (laughs) On the other hand, fixed income is meant to be less risky on the whole, investment grade, government bonds, and so on. And certainly the price volatility of fixed income is much lower than equities. However, most bonds are yielding less than inflation. Right. And again, what we describe that as negative real yield. So if you hold a UK 10-year government bond, gilt-edged investment, the UK government will pay you back in 10 years. The purchasing power of that bond... And I very rarely say certainties in the investment world, but it's near as certain that you'll have less purchasing power in 10 years than you will have today if you park your money in there. So the traditional way of 
adjusting the risk in a portfolio is the ratio of bonds to equities. Although that is quite frankly being challenged by today's environment of low interest rates and higher inflation. It's fascinating, fascinating to hear. I did have one sort of final question, which was around one of the things I'm interested in is the oil industry and decarbonisation, which I think is going to be a big trend or is a big trend already. It seems like the fund management industry and the asset management industry are actually quite ahead of the game in terms of these things. So if I'm a customer of Cavendish Ware, do I have to talk to you about sort of a specialist fund around decarbonisation or is that something that you're thinking about more broadly? Again, it's something we think about both as trend development and in the portfolios. So our core portfolios are not run as exclusion portfolios. We do not avoid oil or tobacco in those portfolios. Our goal is in the end to make a financial return within the risk parameters we've arrived at with the clients. The fund managers we employ all consider ESG issues. But that doesn't necessarily mean excluding an industry that's deemed to be evil or bad. We very much believe about the issues of engaging with the company to have positive development. So even an oil company can be better than they were 10 years ago. And we live in the real world and we invest in the real world. For instance, one of the reasons why oil is going up in price and in Europe, we're suffering from a squeeze in gas prices is entirely because we've mistimed, and I mean collectively, governments, investors, consumers, campaigners have misjudged two big timelines. One is the need to have energy here and now to keep things moving and keep houses warm and so on. And the timeline to decarbonize and replace that source of energy with reliable, low-carbon or zero-carbon alternatives. And so by under-investing in oil production or fossil fuel production in the short term, pricing power has returned to OPEC and Russia. And they're basically doing what game theory would say they're doing, which is they're maximizing their revenues at the cost of non-producing consumers and companies in non-producing countries. So to have excluded oil from our portfolios would have actually led to material underperformance. What we expect is our fund managers to engage with those companies. And even if they are in a sector that we can see that in 20 years time, oil may not run out. I remember when people spoke about oil will run out, peak oil. We'll probably leave oil in the ground because it's not economic to extract and nobody wants it. It'll be used as a feedstock for chemicals and that's it. But here and now, there's scope in the investment universe. And there's scope for the fund managers to engage with those companies and improve the direction that they're going in. That's also the same with cars. Volkswagen, five, seven years ago, when did Dieselgate erupt? I mean, they were the devil incarnate. Now, they have embraced the transition to EVs that they've been re-rated as an enabler. And in a few years' time, they will be the largest producer of electric vehicles in the world. Tesla may all get the column inches, but the reality is selling Tesla Xs at £100,000 a time is not going to solve the problem. On the other hand, it's partly because we were dismayed at greenwashing. The portrayal of uh, investment fund as being green, when in reality it wasn't. 
And partly because of the beliefs and values of Cavendish Ware, we developed the impact portfolio. Now, that is a portfolio that invests in fund managers whose primary goal is to invest in companies that are driving positive change and could be aligned to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's very different from just avoiding tobacco or avoiding oil, because exclusion is not going to change the world. Because in many countries, companies, charities have been avoiding tobacco for decades, and it hasn't gone away yet. So the impact portfolio is more than ESG. It's more than green. It's going a whole step further. But it is a higher risk portfolio because the underlying companies are younger, more startup, more early stage companies, which tend to be more volatile. Very interesting. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating for me. I really feels like I've learned a massive amount just from this short conversation. I think there's going to be other opportunities to have you back on and talk about some of the investment things that are going on. I think 2022 is shaping up to be a very interesting year for economists. So leaning on you to kind of help explain what's going on is going to be very valuable. I think I'd just end it with one comment. We think a lot about what's going on. I think sometimes too short term, but Adrian has got a very good phrase, which is don't just do something stand there sometimes we're tempted to do stuff but actually sometimes it's best just to think about it and then take a deep breath and not react fantastic fantastic well thank you so much that was really really good thanks for tuning into baseline a monthly podcast series dedicated to topics that matter in wealth management be sure to check out our podcast archive on soundcloud and until next time have a marvelous week You have been listening to Baseline from Cavendish Ware, an NMD Plus production.